knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome back, everybody, to the Habitat Podcast. We're here to become better habitat managers. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees. I have my trusted co-host, Brian Hallboy, on the line. And we are here to celebrate episode 100. What's going on, Brian? Sitting here in God's country, eastern Ohio, Project 311, late October. Doesn't get much better than this, buddy. Anything that might be better is hitting episode 100, maybe. Ah, oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I'm I'm a little jealous. So you got your vacation started. I'm gonna. I'm taking a couple days off the rest of the week. I'm gonna get going tonight down to Ohio. So. I'm going to be right there with you tomorrow, and um, before that, though, we have to get this celebratory episode launched, number 100. I can't believe we've done 100 episodes. That's insane, man. Uh, congrats to you and all the uh, dreaming and preparing and all the hard work over the last 99 got you to this point, so I just want to say a big congrats to you, and great job, man. Well, thank you, sir. I really do appreciate that, um, and I, I got to give it right back. You know, you're you're quite the co-host, and, and you do an excellent job as well. And just really appreciate having you here, and and I, and I know the the listeners appreciate you as well. And you know, we appreciate you guys, the listeners. A hundred episodes. You know, it's it's a it's a decent amount of work, and not to get down into the weeds too much on that stuff, but all the good feedback we've gotten over the past. 99 and and just the people we've met and the support we've gotten and the the Facebook interactions and everything has just has really kept me going for sure like there's nothing better or better fuel in the tank than, than something like that wouldn't you agree absolutely and then we see those pictures that people send us and uh they're harvesting deer over something they heard on our podcast and decided to try and it's made a difference in uh, their lives and their hunting season. So that that really strikes the chord and, and, and really makes all the hard work worth it for sure. Yeah, so I'll, I'll raise one up to our listeners here and to Brian. And then lastly, our, our partners. We couldn't do it with our, our partners that have been helping out along the way. And, and we've uh, 
as we've been growing, we have to see them grow as well. You know, Lincoln's selling a buttload of Packer Maxes over there and just doing well. It's good to see, you know, our partners who are also good people um, just, just doing well. And that's also to the support of the listeners. So here's to all you guys in, in episode 100. Now, Brian, our special guest, was uh, lined up by this phenomenal co-host I have. Um, <laughs> why don't you go? Why don't you tell everybody who it is? Well, I don't think he needs any introduction, and I certainly can't add anything to it. So we'll just get right down to it. Episode 100, none other than Mr. Bill Winky with Midwest Whitetail. Yes, sir. We're going to have Bill on. Right now, we're going to talk about all kinds of great stuff, like how Bill purchases and lays out his type of farms, manages his farms, talk about three reasons for great TSI work, uh, his biggest management challenges, the do's and don'ts on the farms that he's learned, uh, hunting mature bucks, best go-to stands, favorite trees, all kinds of good stuff. We really can't explain it all now. We just It's a very great episode, and Bill is just on the next level. Uh, when, you, when we were talking to him, we just realized that, man, this guy thinks at a whole other level, and it, it's pretty awesome. So thank you, Bill, so much for coming on. I want to thank our partners at Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Realtree, Lake States Realty and Auction, Sound Barrier Hunting, and Morse Nursery. I want to thank you guys, episode 100, and uh, let's get right into it with Bill Winky from Midwest Whitetail. Okay, here we are, another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have my co-host Brian Hallbly on the line, and a very special guest tonight, Mr. Bill Winky. How are you doing tonight, Bill? Good, good. How are you guys? Doing great. Doing well, thanks. So, Bill... Um, We've been wanting to get you on here, and we've been following your stuff for a very long time. You're you're chasing November, uh, you know, with uh, the team there at, at Midwest Whitetail and Realtree and Jared and, and Josh and Drake and those guys. Such a great job. Um, I just want to compliment you on, on Season 5 this year. Really, really turned out well. Yeah, that was mostly – I mean, obviously there's a role that I play in that, but not, not that much of a role anymore. Uh, that was just Josh Sparks. Um he just did a really, really good job with that series. So uh, I just want to make sure that he gets due credit for that. Uh, you know, the first few seasons of that, we mapped out what the what the feel and flow of that series should be. Then I had, you know, that was more when I was most active in the series. But now it's, uh, like I said, it's Josh has taken on that project and really done an awesome job with it. I think, you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying this because I have any involvement in it. I'm I'm saying it to pat Josh on the back, but I think it's the best whitetail series that I've watched. Um, and, and granted, you know, I've I've watched a lot of TV shows that that you know they don't have the same style format, so it's kind of not comparing apples to apples. But I really think Chasing November is good. Um, I think that he does an awesome job with it. No doubt. <laughs> Won't get any argument from us, that's for sure. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, guys, but, yeah, he, he does a really good job. Well, plus, uh, you know, Josh is just a great guy, and, and we, we met Josh and, and Drake and those guys a couple years back at ATA, and just awesome, awesome group of guys, so congrats again. Yeah, yep. 
Yeah, it's a good team for sure. So we wanted to get you on here. We like to talk habitat, as you may already know. And uh, to give the listeners kind of a background or maybe paint them a picture about who Bill is, let's hear about your, your background, maybe your history of, of deer hunting and, and maybe how you got into some habitat work, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the background story could, could be a long one um, just because, you know, everybody has a, a – nobody has a direct path into the hunting industry, it doesn't seem like. Uh, so there's a lot of twists and turns in the road. But uh, rather than going down, you know, a, a long way down that trail, um, I'll just say that my background was in engineering, mechanical engineering, and uh, I sort of came sideways – into the hunting industry through a friend that I made that uh, he encouraged me to do a little bit of writing for him. And then, you know, that led to the next one and the next one. And the next thing I knew I was doing it full time. And, uh, you know, I wrote for the magazines from 91 through, well, I still do to this day. I still write for a few magazines, but I had to start scaling back pretty heavily in the mid 2000s because the magazines were starting to dry up. And, uh, you know, it was unfortunate, but, you know, a lot of advertising dollars were moving in other directions, either toward television or toward the Internet. And, uh, you know, the print uh, print advertising segment was getting less. So, you know, they match up one page of editorial for every page of, of uh, advertising, typically a good magazine will. So if the number of pages of advertising drops, the number of pages of editorial drops, so they're buying less. So people like me, you know, don't don't have as many markets to write for. And then as certain magazines start to undergo even more stress, they go out of business. And next thing you know, you know, the print uh, side of the industry got a lot smaller. Um, I'd say it, it's probably 20% or less now, uh, probably less than that. It's probably 10% or less, yeah, than what it was in its peak. Uh, in the late 90s and uh, – early 2000s, there were a ton of hunting magazines. Uh, I did a lot of writing. but uh, So anyway, as that market started to dry up, then I started looking for other things to do because I didn't want to have to take the regular job, you know, heaven forbid. Um, so, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's when I started dabbling with video more and uh, ended up you know, starting the Midwest Whitetail Series in 2008. Uh, so that that's kind of what brought me to that point. The habitat side was always uh, – that was always a, a bigger part of, of, you know, who I was, I think. I loved land uh, ever since I was a kid. You know, I could just walk. And, and I think well, hunting... that sounds like a... Yeah, I, I, I think hunting and fishing to me were more about the places that they took me than the actual um, quest itself. I, I just loved the places that, that hunting and fishing will, would take me. Um, so... You know, it was natural for me once I could get my hands on some land, you know, to try to do as much with it as I possibly could. And um, my own habitat management started in uh, 1995 was when I first started acquiring land. And, uh, you know, it's been going on ever since. So was that first uh, property you purchased in 95, was that in Iowa where your main farm you just sold was? Or was that a different one altogether? Yeah, it was a different one. That was a subchapter S uh, corporation that I became a part owner of. And uh, there were 14 of us that owned uh, 
3,500 acres. And back then, you know, it sounds like, oh, my gosh, you know, yeah, it was a lot of land, but it wasn't a lot of money, believe it or not. I mean, back in the mid-'90s, you know, land in southern Iowa was around $300, $350 an acre at the most. Um, you know, so, you know, you break that many acres up into 14 different pieces and, and uh, you know, I mean, I could barely afford it as it was, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a high-priced entry point for me. Um, you know, I mortgaged everything I had. My sister even put up her Ford Explorer and co-signed the loan for me, <laughs> so I could buy, I could buy one one share of ownership in that uh, corporation. But there were only a couple of bow hunters involved, and uh, most of the hunters were not real hardcore. So I really, we moved to that location. Pam and I did, my wife and I, and we actually. Uh, lived in the house on the property, and I did all of the on-site management. And it was a little bit harder to do habitat management, although I did some, because when you got 14 owners, you're not just going to go out and start cutting trees down. Uh, it took an act of Congress with that many people to to make those kinds of changes. But um, I could, I did a lot of, of uh, food plot work, and uh, at one point I think I had 300 and some acres of food plots on there, uh, which – was pretty amazing. Wow. Uh, so there was a good, yeah, it was a good laboratory just for seeing, you know, how deer reacted to different things. And, and, uh, you know, we did a lot of stuff with switchgrass and, you know, some of those other, you know, non-traditional habitat types, but we didn't do a very much, not very much, some timber stand improvement work on the property. Uh, it could have used a lot more, but anyway, that was where I started. And, uh, shortly after that, I started buying land, you know, under our name, and uh, I think it was 2003 when we sold that, uh, you know, share of ownership in the subchapter S and then rolled that into even more land. Uh, so it was, it was, uh, I think it, I didn't mind the, the, the subchapter S. Uh, I got along pretty well with everybody, but there's still a lot of chiefs and not very many Indians. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it makes it tougher. Yeah. Right. It was, uh, it was better. It was better, um, you know, owning the land outright. Uh, so that was. But I would encourage people. I think if you know if there's just no other way to do it, don't be afraid to partner up with a couple people. But you know, don't. It's probably not going to be a long-term deal. I don't see very many partnerships that last a real long time. So just make sure that you've got a good buy-sell clause built into that, so that you can find your way out or. You know, your partners can you know, sell to you or whatever the case may be because uh, it's a good way to get in, uh, but it's not a great way to stay in the land game, uh, in my opinion. So that's that's kind of my big, you know, the big picture history of, of what I did. And there's a lot of details. Obviously, we could go on and on and on for three days, you know, and, and talking about, <laughs> you know, how, how you structure those kinds of things and how you afford them and, you know, the, the different ways of – of actually buying land and and uh so i'll let you point me in the right direction I, that's hopefully that answered your question yeah yeah i think i'm gonna if we're talking for three days i'm gonna call off work tomorrow and just grab a coffee <laughs> and <we'll>, <laughs> <laughs> i better start to put some caffeine in the in the in the system myself but uh no it's <laughs> it's, it's a good topic it's a fun topic and uh it's one that i'm passionate about i love land uh, I always have, and uh, like I said, I think that's part of the thing I like most about hunting is just being out on the land and, and just, you know, seeing what comes, you know, around each corner. 
uh, it's kind of fun yeah. when you explore new new places. Uh, it's cool to you know to have a part of your property that you don't know that well, you know, or something. You can go in there and you can spend you know a season, you know, maybe learning the back forty. Uh, where you know, if you just, I just like you know just the the, the discovery and the fascination with just with land and the way animals and, and wildlife use it. Uh, it's just pretty pretty cool stuff. Well yeah, and that, that leads us to our, our next topic, which is your big your big farm and how you kinda of put that together. But b- before we get there, do you end up having equity in your portion of that thirty five hundred acres that you then rolled into the next purchase or was it simply your purchase yeah. price? Uh no, you could sell so so the way that was structured was you own you know, 114. So I bought it in 95 and sold it in 2003. Um, I'm thinking that, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, I think I hunted there for eight, eight or nine seasons. I think I hunted there in 2003 also and then sold it after that. So anyway, um, you know, I made a whole bunch of money on that um, because land went up a lot from 95 to 2003. So when I sold it, I took the money right out of that and, and purchased land that bordered. I'd I'd, I'd I'd bought 125 acres within about a mile of the 3,600 acre property, so I already knew the neighborhood. I already knew I wanted to be in that neighborhood, um, so I already had 125 acres there. Knew that you know pretty much everything that I needed to know, you know, as far as you know the names of the neighbors and just you know a lot of information. So I wasn't hesitant uh, when some of my neighbors said they'd be willing to sell to me you know, to start grabbing up as much as I can get. So that's when I sold out of the, out of the corporation and then uh, put that money into land that bordered that original 125. But uh, there was a lot of other things I did to, to enlarge that. I went from 125 up to almost 1,000 acres in about four or five years. And, uh, you know, my income didn't necessarily justify that kind of a move. But I I was lucky in some of the stuff that happened and, and some of the pieces, you know, that fell into place for me. Uh, yeah. You know, so I was able to do that maybe where, you know, I'd be scratching my head now trying to tell you that you could do it again. Uh, I could tell you what I did, <laughs> but I'm not for sure I could pull it off again because that was a, that was a certain time and a certain place. And, uh, you know, God bless me with, with some opportunities there. But... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we can dive into that as deep as you want to get. It was fascinating the way that that all played out and, and you know, how I was able to put it all together. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I sold out of the corporation in, uh, I think, 04 and uh, put that into more land that bordered the original 125 that we had bought. Okay. Yeah, I know um... – for anybody who, who wants to see a, a nice video about Bill's story, you can go to their Midwest Whitetail YouTube and see the I Sold My Farm video, which came out with uh, last week, and that explains a lot of what you're kind of hinting at here, and, and it's a, a great place for the listeners to, to catch up. But moving right into that, I guess I, I know you went from, you said, uh, 125 up to in the 900s. How did you, how did you put the farm together when you weren't quite sure how many acres you were going to end up with, you know, you know what I mean? Like you didn't really, you didn't really have like the blank slate all there ready for you. You kept adding on like a di- an addition to a house. 
Yeah. So you mean like how did I do the management or how did I how did I put it together like from a from a purchasing standpoint? Um, if you want to touch on the purchasing a little bit, that'd be great, but more on the management side uh, as well. Okay. Yeah, I won't talk about the purchasing side because that's that's just such a, a can of worms. If we started down that trail, uh, that would be that was some there was some stuff there that that you know I think people would be shocked. Um, some of the stuff I was able to pull off on that one. I'll give you just like a couple of really quick examples without going into any detail. Uh, I was buying other properties, um, doing the management work on those properties, you know, getting them teed up a little bit and then reselling them, and that was how I was buying land that bordered me in the area where my house was, you know, that in order to enlarge my property, I was trying to find undervalued properties anywhere I could find them. And they would, you know, I think the farthest away was about two hours. Um, and, and I was finding properties here and there. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time uh, looking through listings and looking at properties and I had a pretty good network of various people, you know, loggers and realtors and hunters and friends and game wardens and you name it. You know that I could I could tap into, and I would tap into all those people regularly and say, "What have you seen? You know, have you heard anybody that was interested in selling, and so forth?" So I was able to find undervalued properties, bring them up to value, sell them, and then put that money back in uh, around the house where I wanted to enlarge that. Uh, but yeah, some of the stuff. I mean, on on one of them, in order to sell it, I had to close a two mile through road um, and, and it was in the purchase agreement the sale was contingent upon me closing this this uh, level B road that bordered the property so I I basically had to go around and talk to all the neighbors and go to the county board of supervisors and visit with those guys and finally I was able to get a two mile through road and you've heard of people closing dead ends I've never heard of anybody closing a through road before but I got it closed, and we gated it on both ends, and, and the purchase went through, and I sold it, you know, for a nice profit because the guy wanted, you know, seclusion. Yeah. And uh, right, he, right. I suppose he figured there's no way Bill's going to pull this off, you know, so I don't have to worry about, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I was able to get that done. Another one, uh, I bought an island, and uh, it had a bunch of marketable timber on it, but, you know, it's hard to get marketable timber off an island. Uh, so I had to work with the Army Corps of Engineers and come up with a way to get out there to get it. And as it turned out, there was some WRP on the island. So the Army Corps of Engineers guy said, I can't keep you from doing anything you want to to get to it. Uh, it was an island on the Cedar River. So it was out in the middle of this river. Um, I shouldn't say in the middle. It was about 75 yards of flowing water on my side, then the island, and then the main channel. So I ended up building a dam, basically, with with uh, busted concrete that I got from, you know, somebody in the nearby town that had, you know, some construction company. And I had it all trucked out there, and guy with a track loader dropped it all into that, into that, wow. uh, yeah, we dammed it. So everybody said, oh, you got to build a bridge or you got to build, you know, whatever. But it, it occurred to me that, you know, you have to stop this water because if all you do is you go in there and you put tubes in, you know, the water is just going to keep rushing through there. So the whole idea then, of course, is to raise the level of this crossing until it's a little bit higher than the point where the water starts to go around the island on the upstream side. So all you got to do is, you know, get it two or three feet higher than, you know, than the water level or, you know, at that point because it couldn't be dropping much more than that. So that's what we did. We just filled it in, basically dammed it, 
you know, and the water went around on the other side of the island rather than coming around my side. And uh, we went in there and got all the logs off. And, and then, you know, it was uh, stuff like that. Um, there was a lot of creative things that I had to do um, in order to be able to do the, the stuff that I did with the income that I had. I guess that's the that's the gist of the story was, uh, you know, I didn't have enough income to buy, you know, almost a thousand acres of land, but by finding other land that was undervalued and doing things that normally, you know, would be pretty hard to do just by persistence, getting those things done, then I was able to, you know, make a really nice return on some of these other properties and roll that in. Um, so that was, that was basically how I put it together. So from the management side, um, you know, it all it all happened fairly quickly. Um, you know, so there was about a four year period in there, maybe a little bit more, where most of that all kind of fell together. Um, so I was starting on the stuff that I bought first. You know, focusing on the timber stand improvement primarily, and then obviously food plots. Those were the obvious and and and, and uh, simple starting points. And then, you know, obviously there's a lot of tricks and lessons you know, in, in both of those, you know, things that you learn to do that, you know, fit into certain situations. Um, but th- that's what I did was, was, you know, as I acquired a piece, I just did the best I could, you know, from a management standpoint on that piece. And then, you know, the next piece, if I acquired it, I did the same thing on there, um, you know, until I basically put the whole thing together. Uh, but it was, it was a big undertaking. I mean, even if you figure timber stand improvement, I had about 750 acres of timber, uh, roughly, of, of you know non-open land, if you want to call it that. It wasn't all necessarily timber. Some of it was kind of brushy, you know, so you didn't have to do a lot of TSI on that. We probably did TSI on 600-plus, pushing 700 acres uh, over the course of a few years there. And uh, I had some pretty good-sized crews out there. And I don't like... Uh, and, and we can get into this topic too, but I don't like uh, hinge cutting. So we were dropping all of those trees, and uh, that was uh, there was a lot of trees on the ground. Oof, boy! Uh, but it made a huge difference in in you know the type of habitat that was there. So that so that's, what uh, what's, what specifically did you do there, Bill? Did you have uh, certain species that you took out, or did you take so many trees per acre, or what was your approach on the TSI yeah. for that section? Well, my approach was probably a little bit heavy-handed. I know the district forester didn't really like it. Uh, he thought I was cutting too many trees, uh, but the district forester is not a deer hunter, and he didn't own the land. So I discounted him immediately. Um, and, and I think that's kind of what you get is there's some of the old-school foresters that are going to focus on saying, okay, well, if you cut too many trees, you know, then all you're going to get is bushy trees, you know, the ones that you that you keep. Um you know, from the standpoint of, let's say, you're you're trying to uh, open up the canopy around a bunch of walnuts or whatever. You know, the if you open it up too much, you know, then those trees grow out. Um, so his point was, you know, you open the crown and then you move on. You know, you don't cut down every hickory tree within, you know, a, a five-acre area and, and leave the oaks and the, and the walnuts to fend for themselves. It might be, you know, w- w- too low of a of a tree count for those guys, um, you know, to be comfortable with the, with the formation of those trees. Uh, from a forestry standpoint, you have to have 
a certain density of trees in order for them to compete and grow straight and, and not put out, right. you know, those low branches. Um, so I basically violated some of their concepts of, you know, what is a, a correct forestry approach. But then again, I didn't buy that farm um, with forestry in mind. I, I didn't mind taking some income off the trees, uh, and I certainly did do that as well. But uh, my number one priority there was to create the absolute best whitetail hunting farm that I possibly could. And, and sometimes you have to compromise a few other things when you're doing that. I mean, I'm not telling people to do that. I'm just saying that's what I did. Um, sure, sure. You know, that, you know the, the disclaimer, of course, is listen to your forester because then you don't have to come back and yell at me. <laughs> but that's, that's not what I did. You know, I, 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 I took the hit saying, well, I don't really care if the timber is, you know, awesome 70 years from now or if my whitetail hunting versus my whitetail hunting being awesome two years from now. Um, you know, I, I wanted the, the the best bang for the buck from a wildlife standpoint, not necessarily from the forestry side. Uh, you know, not, not to say, again, that I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't take that, uh, you know, but I wasn't grooming my timber for the forestry value. I was grooming it for the wildlife value. And there's a difference, uh, you know. So the district forester didn't like it, but the the uh, private lands forester that the DNR employed, uh, he was all over it, and uh, he'd come out and and uh, you know, we'd work through a lot of programs together. So he was the guy that I kind of leaned on more, was the uh, private lands biologist rather than the district forester. Uh, and and the, the newer guys, you know, the younger guys that came along later, the foresters were better to work with. Some of the old school guys, they just didn't like, you know, anything that had to do with wildlife versus pure forest right right yeah and that's that's the trade-off a lot of our listeners you know they might buy their farm for you know let their kids run on part of it with a quad or maybe set it up for fishing or duck hunting so you know we, we talk about those trade-offs all the time and that's that's a great example you know you wanted specifically for whitetails so you, you did what you thought was best and obviously it turned out fantastic yeah and it, it's a it's a high maintenance approach because uh you know TSI is not one and done um so when you go through and do a, a really aggressive TSI you're going to have to follow that up with another fairly aggressive TSI within about 10 years in that same area because the stuff that comes up isn't necessarily going to be your oaks and your walnuts and the stuff that you kind of want to see it's going to be ironwood and there's going to be right. other stuff that you know even some of the invasives will start to peak out you know that that you you really need to stay on top of of uh, a TSI cutting, and the more aggressive it is, I think the more aggressively you have to stay on top of it because you open up so much uh, of the canopy that you just get this wild flush of growth, and uh, it goes crazy for a while, and then you've got to go back into it again. Uh, so just, I just figured it's a 10-year cycle. You know, TSI is, you know, 10 years, and you got to be back in, in there again, um, cleaning up, you know, some of the stuff that, that popped up you know, after you open the canopy that you don't want. Um, so that was that was one of the things that I learned. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really significant was the invasives, uh, because if you open an area that has, well, basically you got to look at the forest floor, and you have to see what's there. Um, if there's a little bit of something, when you bring daylight, there's going to be a lot of that. Uh, so if you've got a little bit of cedar trees, or you've got a little bit of 
multi-floor rows or you've got a little bit of, uh, you know, we had a problem with bush honeysuckle in parts of the farm, um, and you open it up, you're going to have a lot of that stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, if there's nothing, then typically the first generation is grass, uh, you know, just like not even trees. It's kind of weird that, you know, if you have a bare floor uh, in the forest and you completely open it, you know, the first generation of, of plants that you get there is going to be grass. Um, so some of that stuff you don't even want to open. Um, so you have to be kind of careful about that. That was one thing I learned, too, is, you know, you can't just go, you know, with a with a lawnmower and mow your timber down. Um, you have to be a little bit more careful about what it is that you're releasing uh, because that's that's going to be your your – you know, your burden for the next several years is trying to figure out, okay, how do I manage this thing, this wild animal that I let loose, <laughs> Sure. you know, in some cases. So uh, that that was another lesson that I learned. Um, but overall, it was really good for the farm, uh, opening up the timber like that. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot of a lot of reasons why I believe that to be the case. Uh, three, well, three primary. And I don't want to, you know, just keep talking. I want you guys to tell me what you think your <laughs> listeners would be most no, interested in. So. <laughs> no problem. And, yeah. The, so anyway, I'll, I'll touch on those really quick, then I'll just throw it back to you guys. But sure. the, the, you know, making the timber thicker, I felt like benefited the farm in three ways. Uh, first, from a very practical standpoint, even if it doesn't do anything for the wildlife, it does make the farm hunt bigger because the, the deer can't see you uh, when you're walking to and from your tree stands from nearly as far. So if you figure in a wide open timber, they could, they might be able to see you for 250 yards, maybe through the timber. So if you're not too careful about where you walk, you've just cleared an area that's a quarter of a mile wide because they can see you from 250 yards in either direction. Um, you know, so that's a pretty big chunk of ground. I mean, you better own it off the big farm if you can afford to clear a quarter of a mile you know, passageway on the way in and out. Um, sure. But if but if you make it really thick, it might only be 30 yards. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of parts of that farm that were so thick that I bet you that deer couldn't see me 20 yards away. You know, they might hear me or smell me, but they wouldn't see me. Um, so now I've just made my farm hunt way, way, way bigger uh, because I'm not educating deer, um, you know, the, at any distance at all from, from my entry and exit routes. Uh, so that was one thing I felt like was really important. Uh, number two was there was a lot more browse in the timber so the deer aren't feeding nearly as aggressively in the crop fields and the food plots. So your food plots go farther. They last longer. You don't have nearly as much depredation on any commercial crops that you've got on the property um, because the deer have got something to eat before they come out. So they're going to, rather than coming out hungry, they're going to come out into the bean field with maybe a 25% or a 50%, you know, of their appetite already satisfied uh, because the browse is nutritious and it's tasty and it's right there. Uh, so that's that's a, a definite bonus. And then the third thing, um, this is something that I think is more anecdotal. I don't know that I've seen very much research on it, but I've talked to a lot of people and, and they've all agreed with me that have done it. If you make your farm thick, um, I feel like you can hold more mature bucks on it because they are, you know, Obviously, there's dominance within within certain animals, and they just don't tolerate each other if they're sitting there looking at each other all the time. So you've got a buck on one ridge, and you can look across and see a buck bedded on the next ridge. When he gets up, he's going to go over there and run that other buck off. Um, 
or they're going to at least have some kind of a confrontation. And if every time he gets up, he goes out to the little clover field and both bucks have to go to that same clover field because they're both hungry and there's no place else to go, I just don't feel like you're going to have the same um, carrying capacity of mature bucks when they're interacting all the time uh, because that dominance really starts to become a more significant part of their behavior than if they just don't have to interact. They don't see each other. They're not running into each other all the time. Therefore, they tend to be a little bit more tolerant. Um, and like I said, I've talked to other people who have agreed with me. They felt like when they're the, thick, the thicker their farm property was, um, the better they were able to hold multiple of those older age class mature bucks on it. Um, so those are the three three benefits I felt like I picked up from uh, TSI. I don't know that the deer felt more secure there. Um, I do feel like they like to bed in a little bit more open, you know, maybe on the edge of the thick stuff. I don't. I didn't get the sense that they just burrowed into the thickest cover they could find. You know, I know some people say right. that, but I think where maybe the hunting pressure is super heavy, maybe that's the case. You know, maybe they just dive into those, you know, super thick spots and they don't come out until the, you know, the guns are done. But uh, I didn't see that on my farm. I didn't feel like it was about their security. I felt like the other three factors were more important. Uh, but there might be, like I said, in heavily hunted areas, especially smaller properties maybe where, you've created that sanctuary and then, you know, the hunting pressure on the neighboring properties drives those deer in there and they feel safe. Um, that might be a good fourth reason. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't have that, like I said, on mine. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and you kind of answered my next question was going to be about, you, you talk about trying to come up with 75% of cover where a lot of people might recommend 50, 50 or 60, 40, but, that all makes a lot of sense now, talking about how much TSI and how much cover you're bringing to your farms. Well, and I think part of that is, is by necessity. Um, people look at that and they think, well, I have to have income, you know, on this farm in order to be able to afford it. Um, I guess, you know, I understand that. Um, it, it never made sense to me because I wanted the best whitetail hunting farm. You know, I didn't want, you know, a mixed-use farm, really, uh, because farming is not that great of an investment. Uh, and And... You know, it, there's something nice about owning farmland, you know, and having the guy come and cash rent it. But, you know, that's a pretty low rate of return, really. Uh, if you're looking at it from the standpoint of, of, you know, an investment, there's a lot of better things you can do with that money than buying, you know, uh, a, a cornfield and, and cash renting it to somebody. Um, you know, people do it all the time, and I don't say they shouldn't, but I'm just saying that that's like a 3% return typically in, in today's market. Um, in today's world, and granted, that's better than your savings account, but there's a lot of other stuff out there you could do with money. So if you're looking for a return, you know, none of this is going to be a very good return, you know, un unless you sell it. Um, but that's not why I was buying hunting land. I wasn't buying it for the return. Um, I was buying it because I wanted the absolute best hunting land. And that, in my mind, was a 75-25 because I didn't need more than 25% of it to be food. And I wanted as much habitat as I could get, you know, so I had more places to hunt and, you know, more places to hang my tree stands and so forth, more places for the deer to live and, you know, just carry more deer. Um, so that's where I arrived at that 75-25 number is uh, just because I wasn't trying to create a, a return. Uh, but, you know, I understand, you know, where some people are at on that. That was just never my, you know, my personal strategy when it came to buying hunting land. Um I figured I would try to make my money someplace else and then buy the best hunting property I possibly could and not try to buy 
a piece of land that created income. And it's still to, my, to this day, I mean, I'm looking for land now. And I'm looking at farms that are, you know, 50-50, and I don't, I'm turning them down. Um, you know, I, I, I want more timber. Um, so anyway, that's just me. I like timber. Well, you, you have a few good points there. I mean, you bought the land to to hunt big deer on and have the best whitetail paradise. That's reason number one. Everything else can can fall behind. I I I agree with you. I do the same thing for for my small property and and uh, I think your your keys on logging and TSI were were awesome. Um, I just I never heard anybody say the seventy five percent to eighty percent mark for cover, even though I think you're spot on there. Uh, whitetails, especially here in Michigan and in Pennsylvania and Ohio where Brian hunts, cover is king. I mean, food's awesome, but yeah. you're right, cover is king. Yeah, and if you don't have to cut the, or, or you know, pick the corn or, or whatever, mow the alfalfa three times, um, you can feed an awful lot of deer on 25% open ground. That's a good point. You know, especially if, if you do the TSI work inside the timber as well, you know, to make sure there's good browse. Uh, you can carry a pretty high a pretty high density, uh, higher than what you probably want, um, from the standpoint of just having a healthy herd. So 25%, that's a lot. I mean, you got to figure on my farm that was 250 acres of open ground. I mean, how many deer can you feed with 250 acres? <laughs> I mean, that's that's way more. I could feed way more deer than what I had. That's for sure. You know, so even at even at 25% open, I probably could have been 20% open. You know, and and or maybe even 15%. You know, and still and still fed all the deer just fine. Um, you know, with so are a lot of the farms you're you're seeing right now are they mostly <clears throat> in crop rotation? Is that why you're having trouble finding one with that much cover because everybody's been farming for so long? Yeah, partly. And and uh, you know the the stuff that I really want to buy, I'm I'm kind of in a different situation now because I'm trying to buy land in the area where I grew up. And yeah, and I grew up hunting those properties. You know, I grew up running those hills. Uh, you know, I've, I've been there, I was there for many, many years, you know. I, so anyway, I know where I want to be. Um, I can buy land. You know, I can buy decent hunting land. It's just not the, the stuff that I want to buy. Um, I want to buy something really special, you know, something really pretty, someplace where you put a cabin in there and you, know, you pull up your, you know, three-quarters of a mile-long driveway and you get back in there and you don't hear, you know, road noise or anything like that. You know, I... That's what I'm looking for now. You know, I've already had, excuse me, I've already had a great whitetail hunting farm. You know, now I want to find something that that checks off one more box, and that's the seclusion. Uh, the beauty, the beauty in the seclusion, like this is my legacy. Then, you know, maybe the kids don't care that much about hunting, but they're going to care about having a beautiful piece of land. Um, right. So, that's kind of where where my next uh, project is, if I can pull it off, is just to buy something really, really pretty that's really secluded. That you know, I can preserve a piece of of uh, you know something that's dying fast, and that is the those larger recreational properties. I mean, there's gosh, everybody's taking these these really nice properties and breaking them up into small pieces because they can sell them for more. Um, and uh, I, I kind of hate that trend, to be honest with you. Um, right. So I want to try to preserve some really really cool, beautiful you know, uh, traditional, classic, white-tailed bluff country. Um, yeah. So, and, and, again, that's not going to be much tillable on that uh, because okay. you're looking at, you know, you're looking at verti- vertical ground with, you know, it's 
you're not going to find very many farms that have a lot of of cover on them um, that have much flat ground. It's just Iowa. I mean, if it's flat, there's going to be, you know, they're going to have a plow on it. Um, True. So that's that's kind of so the, the beautiful stuff I'm going to find is going to be mostly t- uh, cover because it's going to be in the bluffs. You know, the vertical ground. You know, Ohio's got a bunch of that too, and PA's got a bunch. I was going to say uh, that sounds like Southern oh, Ohio yeah. to me. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And West Virginia. I mean, if you drive around West Virginia. And you go, oh man, this is gorgeous. Um, there are parts of Iowa that look like that, believe it or not. Interesting. Yep, and that's that's where I'm looking. And uh, you know, the area that I sold is a is a scale version of that. Yeah, you know, maybe it's a quarter scale. Uh, right. But you know, there are full scale versions of what you guys have in Southern Ohio and in West Virginia and parts of PA. Um, not the true Appalachian Mountains. You know, that's that's you know way bigger. But more of that, you know, rugged stuff around the Ohio River and, and some right. of the stuff there in West Virginia. Um, we have land that looks like that in Iowa, believe it or not. Very wow. cool. Well, I like your, your trend, uh, the opposite of, of the trend you just talked about, where you put that whole farm together instead of splitting a farm up into smaller pieces. Um, mm-hmm. That's, you know, that's what the goal on, on my horizon. Same with, same with Brian. Uh, yeah. But moving forward into into food, back to that 25%. I'd like to hear about your food plot strategy on that farm. Um, I've watched all of your poor man plot videos and, and that stuff, but like, how did you start, and maybe it goes back to the large 3,500 acre piece when you started screwing around with food plots and learning what worked, what didn't. I guess I want to hear the best of the best on, on what you did for food plots on that, on your latest farm. Well, the you have to always balance the size of the plot with the amount of deer pressure that you're going to get on it before you can put the right thing on there. And, uh, you know, the deer, it takes them a couple of years, but then they'll figure out that it's there and then they'll just be waiting with their mouths open for it to come out of the ground. You know I mean? They, they get where they know it's coming. Um, so sometimes you, you know, you make it work for a couple of years and then all of a sudden you just can't grow anything there anymore. Um, Obviously, you got to take care of the dirt. You know, you got to make it so that when you do get the rains, that the stuff grows fast, so the deer can't stay on top of it. You know, especially if it's something like soybeans. You know, where where they would nip it off. You know, as soon as it pops out of the ground. Um, but if your soil is in good shape and it's fertile and you're taking care of it, um, then uh, it's going to grow faster and you can stay ahead of the deer. In some cases, you know, sometimes obviously if the plot is too small, they're going to wipe it out no matter what. But uh, that was one thing I think that. One mistake that food plot farmers make is uh, they skimp on lime and they skimp on fertilizer and they, they try to cut corners because they're not going to harvest it. And they think, oh, man, I'm going to put $200 an acre into this dirt and then I'm not going to you know, take anything out of it. Um, so then they think, well, maybe I can put $75 in there instead and get by. Uh, they might right. get by for a year or two like that, but it catches up with them. And the way it catches up with them is their food plots just don't grow fast enough and the deer just eat them down. Um, so that's uh, that's one thing to keep in mind. I definitely learned that lesson. The uh, the other thing, too, is is uh, obviously the smaller the plot, the more you have to go to things that can absorb more of that browsing pressure. Um, you know, brassicas are pretty good that way, uh, but the best is clover. You know, clover can handle quite a lot of, of pressure from deer and continue to produce. Uh, you don't have to mow your clover plots. Everybody says, oh, you got to mow them two or three times. 
the deer will mow them. <laughs> you don't have to <laughs> mow them. <laughs> I quit mowing most of mine. I mean, sometimes I'd mow them once if they got weedy, but I never had any problem at all with the deer keeping them mowed. You know, I'm not saying they kept them six inches tall, but see, they eat those lush parts off, and then the clover produces more lush parts. You know, so it's not like you have to, uh, you know, keep taking that off. The deer are taking that off naturally. Um, so, anyway, that's. That's another one that I think kind of flies in the face of, of convention um, because the other problem you run into when you when you mow clover is, uh, you know, if it's dry, then you introduce stress to the plant. Uh, and also sometimes just the residue can be enough to uh, suffocate some of the plants, you know, where, yeah, if you keep it mowed, you know, really short all the time, I guess it's no, you know, I don't know. To me, I, I always felt like mowing it was only because I had to not because I was supposed to uh, and I never had one problem whatsoever with with the deer piling into my clover fields um, so anyway clover I felt like was super critical to the smaller plots you know anything up to an acre I felt like either had to be brassicas or clover and then once you get over an acre you have a little bit more uh, options of what you can put in there depending upon your deer density but uh, if you can't get anything past them, you know, without putting up an electric fence, which I've done some of that, but if you can't get anything past them, then it's time to plant sorghum because they will not mess with sorghum until the head starts to get doughy, um, you know, the seeds start to get doughy, and that's typically okay. September. Do you know if, uh, will that grow up here in Michigan, Ohio, PA, sorghum? I would say for sure, yeah. I mean, um the thing about sorghum is it, it doesn't need um, a lot of moisture. It's fairly drought-hardy, and uh, it does like a higher soil temperature. So you don't have to plant it, say, in April. Uh, you can plant it in May, maybe even late May, and it still do oh, fine. Um, yeah, okay. I so you can plant that for our screens normally. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm tracking now, yep. Yeah, so the stuff you're planting for your screens is the forage sorghum. So what I'm planting to feed the deer is the grain sorghum. It only gets about a little bit more than waist high, maybe chest high at the most, and that's where the seed head is at. Um, and I've planted forage sorghum, the tall stuff, for deer also in areas where the where the density was so high that they were cleaning out the grain sorghum before the hunting season even came. Um, like when I told you I was doing those 300 acres, we were doing 300 acres of sorghum uh, on that farm. And the deer density was so high that they would wipe out 300 acres of sorghum in about two wow. or three weeks. Yeah, Jeez. because that's it was it was the tastiest thing on the farm, and they just went crazy and just ate ate it, you know, down to nothing. As soon as that seed gets doughy, squishy, it starts to fill, and as soon as the seed gets hard, then they'll leave it alone. I mean, I'm not saying they'll quit eating it, but they don't just mow it down like they do when it's doughy. They call it the dough stage, and uh, that's when they when the sorghum is really sensitive, and you'll swear that all the seeds fell off, but they didn't fall off. The deer ate them. <laughs> the deer ate them all. But uh, <laughs> so so the deer will figure it out after a few years, especially if your density is high enough when that doe stage is, and then they'll just be sitting there waiting for it. Uh, but you know the only way that you can get around that, you know, again, you could fence your plots, which I hate doing because it's so much work, um, or you can even plant some of the forage sorghum they will eat the heads of forage sorghum also but because it's six or seven feet you know eight feet sometimes off the ground they can't eat that head when it's in the dough stage it just gets past them and you know there it is right. um so 
then when winter comes and the snow comes, and you've seen your screens, they start to crumble and come down, you know, sometime in November. Uh, you know, they're not, they don't make the whole year standing. Sure. And you could always, you could always knock them down too if you needed to. But, um, so I was planting, then I, then I finally, on that big property, I started switching over and I would take my six row corn planter and I would do three rows of grain sorghum and three rows of forage sorghum. And I would go back and forth, back and forth. So I'd have six, 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 six. Um, and then those deer would just clean out those six rows of grain sorghum, you know, prior to the prime hunting times. But then the, the forage sorghum was still there. And they okay. would eat that. Yep, you know, they'd eat that throughout the rest of the fall. Um, so they're they're really good at, at identifying um, what they want at any given time, especially if they get used to it. You know, it's uh, they they get really really efficient at at eating what you wish they would save. Um, you know, and, and that's the most frustrating part I think about food plots is not necessarily oh, yeah. getting stuff to grow; it's getting stuff to make it until you actually want them to eat it. Right. Um, so, so sorghum is about... one way. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say sorghum is one way to do that. Fencing uh, plots is another way. Um, you know, and I've, I've done that, um, and, and that usually works pretty good too. You know, with corn and beans, um, you don't want to go much more than an acre because you got so much wire that you have to manage. But uh, that will work, and then uh, you know, just having a lower deer density obviously will work, and having better browse in the timber uh, helps too because then they're not quite as hungry when they come out into the fields. Right. So you mentioned a six row corn planter. Are you using a lot of corn and beans to supplement these other plots you talked about? Yeah, typically uh, there is still, uh, you know, some cash crop on the farm, you know, that on that one, you know, we're going back to the one I sold. I didn't food plot the whole farm because there was 150 acres of open ground. So I food plotted about 50 acres, then I cash rented anywhere from 75 to 100 acres. Okay. So there was always there was always some of that uh, available to the deer too. You know, they they would, uh, especially the beans. You know, they really respond well to beans uh, during the summer. Corn, you know, they'll eat the corn obviously, but it's more like eating cotton candy. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not nearly as beneficial to the deer as what beans are. Uh, so, I mean, I think a really, really good mix would be alfalfa, beans, corn. You know, with the, the, you know, if you could have all three of those every year, uh, I think that would be a really, really good program. Uh, but, you know, it's hard to grow alfalfa unless you do it commercially. You know, so I just kind of gave up on it. I tried that a couple of times, and I had a, a few really good fields. But if you don't bale alfalfa and you don't spray it for the leaf hoppers and you don't fertilize it, you know, heavily, alfalfa isn't, uh, it's not a casual crop like clover is that you can just kind of throw it in there and it, it, it does okay on its own without a whole lot of maintenance. Uh, alfalfa takes a lot of maintenance. So, you know, it, it's good. It's awesome. I mean, deer love for it. For sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And if, if you do have, you know, commercial alfalfa farmers around you, I would encourage anybody to say, hey, I'm going to you know, make sure that somehow I've got a few acres that those guys are coming on my place, you know, and, and planting and baling and, you know, ma- managing uh, because there's almost nothing better during the summer and even through the fall than alfalfa. Uh, it's really good for deer. And then, uh, I mean, I, I love corn, of course, because it's really, really attractive once it starts to get cold. Uh, they'll abandon everything else and they'll come to your corn. 
So I always try to have some corn and, uh, you know, beans are sort of in that role too, but they're not quite as attractive. Um, typically what we find is the deer will feed in the beans until it gets really cold and then they go to the corn. Um, that's, uh, that's sort of how we saw it here. And then if it's warm enough, they'll be eating green stuff. You know, they, they, they seem to change what they feed on based on the temperature. You know, if it's warm, it's green. If it's normal, it's, it's beans. And if it's cold, it's corn. That's, that's what they want, uh, under those different types of conditions. Okay. So when you had, uh, 75 to 100 acres rented out, did they leave any standing corn or beans for you? No, but I would have him plant my food plots at the same time. So I might have okay, like a four, I got you. Yeah, I might have a like in my 50 acres or so. <laughs> excuse me. I might have several, you know, four to five acre uh, bean or cornfields in there. Um, so he was planting mine, my row crop food plots at the same time, and uh, I was only planting the clover and the brassicas, the little stuff. Uh, he was planting all the bigger stuff for me, and uh, so that worked really well because. You know, I didn't have to try to encourage him to leave anything, and, and he never felt bad about, you know, quite the deer damage because usually the spots that I picked were the ones that were the more vulnerable spots anyway, you know, that were sure. back in the timber and places that he really didn't want to pay me for in the first place. Okay. So moving on, what were your biggest management challenges? Maybe walk us through some of those, some of the top challenges you had with managing a farm that size. I think the, I didn't have too many real issues with neighbors. I have a lot of neighbors on that farm. There was, I added up one time, there was 27 neighbors. They weren't all hunters, wow. but, you know, either they're, they'd have a little acreage, you know, a couple acres. Maybe they were across the gravel road from me or they bordered me on my side or whatever. You know, they're you know, anywhere from just a couple acre acreages up to, you know, 700-acre properties that bordered me. Um, but I had 27 total. And overall, they were really good. I really had really good neighbors. Um, but, you know, they, they were hunters, some of them. You know, so they're going to kill some of the bucks that I'm passing up. Um, so that was always a, a little bit of, of, I won't say it was a thorn in my side, uh, because you can't fault people for doing that. Um, but it right. is a, a reality of management. So, you know, you think, gosh, even with that much land, uh, there was no way I could control my own destiny. Um I figured it out one time. You got to have over four thousand acres in one block to really do a good job of controlling your own destiny. Uh, you know, where the deer in the middle of the property rarely leave. Uh, right. You know, my farm was kind of strung out. It wasn't like a block or a circle. So therefore, I had a lot of surface area, if you want to call it that, that bordered me. Sure. Uh, so I had I touched onto a lot of other properties. So I won't say that was a challenge, but it was just a reality uh, of of managing. Um, the biggest challenges we ran into were the droughts and the EHD. Uh, other than that, I mean, there was nothing that we were killing really, really big deer on there. Um, oh, yeah. And consist, yeah. I mean, and then we hit we hit EHD in 2012, and then several years of drought after that, and I just couldn't grow anything. And that was really, really frustrating. You know, where I think I went three years in a row where I barely had any food plots make it. You know, through the summer, and you're constantly trying to rescue all of your grain food plots with brassicas in the fall and you, know, you can get away with it sometimes but sometimes you know they they don't even grow then because it's still dry and it's just when, when the stuff doesn't grow um, not only do you feel like you wasted all that money because you don't have crop insurance to cover right, you right yeah but you also don't have any deer you know because they're going to go where the food is um 
So if you get a couple years in a row where you just can't grow anything, um, those deer are leaving. Uh, they're, you're, you're, you're not holding nearly the number of bucks during the winter as, as what you would be if you had the food there. Uh, so that was, the farm was at its best when the, when the fields and the food plots were at their best. Uh, and, and it was at its worst when I just couldn't grow anything or, or even worse yet, you know, I had the EHD issue, you know, that, that we had in 2012 that really hit us. So those were, those were my biggest challenges. Um, they were, they were not related to the deer themselves or the people. It was just really all about the, you know, the, the uncontrollables. Now, Bill, what about your your largest successes? Like, what do you think, besides obviously your your wall and the amount of venison you ended up with, uh, what were some of the things that you walked away with going, man, that really worked out the way we did that? Uh, I think the one that would shock people was uh, – how we flipped the buck to doe ratio with just bow hunting. And uh, I don't think people would would believe that was possible. But, but we took uh, – I'm stepping outside here for just a second. The <laughs> dogs are barking at me. Hey, but, yeah, we, we flipped the buck to doe ratio on that property uh, from – and it wasn't like it was way off, you know, as far as, you know, does to bucks. We had uh, – you know, we probably were at maybe two does per buck at its worst on that on that property when I first bought it. And uh, but we had too many deer. And you know, right away, as soon as I started putting that together, that whole neighborhood had a lot of deer. You know, I was just a short ways away on that 3,600 acre piece. I told you how many acres of food plots we had and how quickly the deer would eat that. Um, that whole neighborhood, that whole area, was like that. So. You know, my neighbors that were farmers, you know, they kind of held us in low regard, you know, the people who owned uh, hunting land. So, you know, I felt some sense of responsibility to these guys to, to help them out. So we had a – I called a meeting at one point with the uh, some of the top guys in the Wildlife Bureau for the Iowa DNR, and they sent their top people. I mean, it was, uh, you know, from the Bureau Chief down and – uh a bunch of my neighbor hunter or farmer neighbors showed up and a few hunter neighbors and we all sat out in my back deck and we had a conversation about, you know, what we had to do because at that time the state of Iowa only gave us two doe tags and they said, well, you have to open your farm up, Bill, you have to let more people come here and hunt and shoot does. And I, I looked at him and said, so you're telling me that I just bought this land and uh, now I have to let whoever basically knocks on my door, come on here and shoot does and and my farmer and my farmer neighbors just looked at the dnr guys and they said he's not going to do that we wouldn't expect him to do that (laughs) they were like sticking up for me it's like no i mean nobody's going to do that i mean that's not a solution you know so then they changed the the regulations where we we had a quota and we had a certain number of does that we could shoot you know, in our county. And, and so it was first come, first serve. So then right away, you know, we had the tools we needed. So my neighbors, my immediate neighbors, my guests, myself, my family, I mean, we maxed out on these doe tags. And uh, we hit it really, really hard for about three, four years, basically killing almost every doe that we could. You know, the, the, the idea, of course, was to bring the population down. 
and uh, we really flipped the buck to doe ratio on that farm. Um, it went from probably, like I said, maybe two does per buck to I think an honest three bucks per doe. Um, wow! And we and we did it somewhat with guns. I mean, I had one guy that you know you could buy like a very high number of these of these doe tags if you wanted to. I mean, there's several thousand quota for our county. So I think one guy bought like 15 and he came out and they had a high power rifle season at the very end. And they said, you know, Hey, we, if anybody wants to mop up some more does, you know, go ahead. So I told him, yeah, come on. And, uh, so he sat on a hill overlooking one food plot and killed 12 with a 270, um, (laughs) one evening because the deer didn't know where it was coming from, you know, so he'd shoot them and they wouldn't run off. You know, they they would just kind of mill around and he killed 12 does, uh, in that one, in that one soybean field in, in uh, one evening. So, I mean, we did kill a number with, like I said, with guns, but a lot of it was with bows. And uh, if you do that aggressively for a while, uh, you you really do change the the ratios. Um, so anyway, that was, I felt like that was something really, really cool that we did that I wouldn't have necessarily thought that was possible, you know, that we could flip it. Uh, and it would it would have been sustainable, I believe, if it, if it hadn't been for the EHD. Yeah. Uh, because... Mm. There were, there were enough deer in the neighborhood in general that we created this vacuum. And, you know, deer, and, and I know I've talked about this in various other, you know, forums, but, but I, I haven't with you guys, but, um, you know, deer don't pile up on top of each other. You know, so when the population starts to increase in a certain area, they're going to disperse outward. Well, the does don't tend to disperse quite as aggressively as the bucks do. The does will stay in their family groups. They'll kind of hang together. You know, they might fringe out a little bit, but the bucks will say, I'm out of here. And they'll go out to the outside of these high density areas. And that's where you're going to see, you know, typically, you know, your, your higher populations of bucks is going to be on the outside, the perimeter of these really high density areas. So we were creating this vacuum, you know, myself and my immediate neighbors. And, uh, you know, that vacuum was filling with bucks that were dispersing from places like that 3,600 acre farm, you know, where they weren't killing any does to speak of. So we were the beneficiary of their dispersal. We were net importers of bucks. Mm. We could have kept that up. I mean, that was sustainable. But then when EHD came into our neighborhood and basically, you know, chopped all of the deer down, you know, not just the ones on my farm, but all the, you know, the properties around me, um, then we weren't, you know, we weren't a vacuum anymore. The whole neighborhood was a vacuum. <laughs> the whole southern end of the state of Iowa yeah, right. <laughs> was a vacuum. Yeah, so uh, that changed the dynamic. But I believe it was sustainable uh, if it hadn't been for the HD in 2012. And do you think that people can do that as well on their own farms? Mm-hmm. Or is there a certain land size or parcel size or group of parcels that maybe you got to recommend for something like that? Or I, I think it's a case-by-case uh, situation because – you you have to assess not only your own property but also what's going on around you because you're not just managing your farm you're managing the neighborhood and uh, you know by definition what is your neighborhood you know how big is that well you know let's say if you've got 200 acres your neighborhood might be yourself and the 600 acres that border you but if you have a thousand acres your neighborhood might be yourself and the you know 3,000 acres that border you and because you know your your circle just keeps getting bigger um, so you have to look at not only what is the dynamics on your property, but what is the dynamics in the in the overall neighborhood? If there aren't that many deer, you can't really be that aggressive. No matter, it just doesn't doesn't make sense. Um, but we had a lot of deer in the entire neighborhood. 
know, there was deer, there was more deer off my farm than there were on my farm. So for me to be aggressive wasn't that big of a deal, you know, because it was going to fill back up again. All I had to do was quit for one year and they're going to be right there again. You know, it wasn't like I was doing any long-term damage by knocking my herd down. Um, so that I think every situation is different. You know, I think if I was in an area with low deer densities, I wouldn't shoot hardly any does. Um, you know, you, you still want to try to strive for a buck to doe ratio that's healthy, but you know, if the numbers are low, you know, you're not going to really, you know, it's just not it's not good to to knock down a herd that's already, you know, in the in the process of you know trying to rebuild. Um, so, it, like I said, every situation is is, is somewhat different. Uh, I'm yeah. only kind of really you know, trying to say what worked in our area. Uh, that's not necessarily what I would do everywhere. Um, and, and there aren't that many places anymore where the population densities are low. Uh, there still are some, but uh, more than likely, you know, taking a, a reasonable number of does is healthy. Um, but we were taking an unreasonable number just because we had to bring the population down, you know, we, we had to make a difference. Um, and, uh, and we definitely did. I mean, you know, the habitat changed and granted EHD played a role in that, but the habitat changed, uh, after that, you know, we had the population working in a somewhat of a downward direction to begin with. The DHD came and then, you know, during that same time frame, I was doing a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, the, the various types of seedings, you know, uh, planting trees from acorns and so forth. And and uh, those types of, of habitat projects need a lower deer density to be successful. Uh, if you're planting trees, if you're planting trees with a lot of deer, um, it's kind of a waste of time. You know, it's, un, it's unfortunate. Either that, either you got to tube them or fence them oh, or yeah. you got to plant. Somehow you got to plant something they don't like you know, which isn't very much. There aren't very many things out there you can plant that they won't eat. Um, so by having a little bit lower density, I was able to sneak in, you know, some projects that maybe wouldn't have worked otherwise. Uh, so there's something to be said, you know, for the occasional, you know, knockdown in, in, in deer numbers, although it it really hurt us when that EHD hit in 2012. I mean, it was, the farm was awesome in 11. I mean, there was, we killed so many big deer on there. We had so many big deer on, on camera. I had 11 bucks, I figured, on the farm that were over 170 uh, in 2011. Wow. And, uh, yeah, in 2012, it might have been one, you know. The rest of them were all dead. Uh, either we killed them in 2011 or the or EHD took them, you know, during the summer yeah. of 11, or of 12, rather. Uh, but, so, yeah, we're, we're pretty susceptible. Uh, in that part of the world, southern Iowa, northern Missouri, you know, you go west of there into the plains. Um, because we don't have EHD every year, you know, we, we get hit um, under certain conditions and the deer don't have the, the continual immunity. Um, so their immunity starts to drop and then we can really get slammed. Um, but, you know, they have EHD consistently in the south and the deer, you know, they keep a, a generally a, a, a more of an immunity to it. But you get up into the Midwest and the immunity, you know, might skip, you know, it it might lapse. And then all of a sudden you're, you're really sensitive for another outbreak. Well, Bill, we want to be respectful of your time, but I can't let you go without talking a little bit of hunting with all the hunting seasons (laughs) that are opening up here. So uh, let's go into... uh, your best three times for mature bucks, if you had to pick 
one stand or blind location? Let's start yeah, with well, the, uh, the early season. Well, the the early season is really all the, about being opportunistic, uh, watching your trail cameras and only hunting those bucks that are showing daylight activity. Because uh, everybody wants to get out. I mean, they're champing at the bit to get going, and it's a mistake because, you know, you can educate deer at a time when they just aren't moving during daylight. And, and they're not nocturnal because you're making them nocturnal. They're just nocturnal because they're physiologically wired that way. So they aren't traveling during the day. Certain bucks aren't. So by putting pressure on them during those times, uh, all you're doing is telling them, hey, you better watch out. You know, when the next cold front comes, you, you're not going to be out walking around in daylight like you, know, like, like you might have been otherwise. So what I'm getting at is uh, don't hunt them if they're not moving in daylight. <laughs> so that, that's the early season formula. And then basically you just hunt them wherever they are. You know, you got a daylight active buck on a certain clover field, then that's where you hunt him. Uh, but the other thing, too, in that early season is you want to hunt the cold fronts uh, because they will move on a cold front even if they haven't been daylight active up to that point, assuming you haven't educated them. So uh, that's why I lay off them. You know, there's only really only two green lights in the early season. Either you've got them on camera in some kind of a reasonable pattern that you can take advantage of in daylight, or there's a cold front. Uh, those are the two green lights. And then otherwise, you, you really should just focus on killing does and, and staying away from your better buck spots. Um, so the stand itself is going to be really dependent upon where you find those individual bucks um, that are, you know, that are huntable. Okay. Now, how about for uh, mid-season getting into the rut? The I think the mornings you want. Well, keep it simple. Um, you want to be wherever the does are at because that's where the bucks are going to be. You know, the the first part of the rut. You know, there's going to be a couple of does that pop before the rest of them do, and that's when some of these older bucks are going to make their biggest mistake. Um, in the peak of the rut. They might be completely nocturnal, just going from one hot doe to another, but only at night. But when that first hot doe, you know, breaks, maybe very end of October, first part of November, uh, he's liable to make a mistake then. So the only way you can really take advantage of that is to be around the does uh, because it's harder to, to peg, peg that one deer and stay on his pattern than it is to just be where he's going, and that is to where the does are. So you know what the does are doing. I mean, you know where they're going to bed, and you know where they're going to feed. So you hunt their bedding areas in the mornings, and you hunt their feeding areas in the evenings, and that's going to be typically your best shot um, during the first part of November. Once you get a little ways into November, then, you know, those does get harassed quite a bit, and they just don't they don't move like they normally would. And they just stay hidden. So then you have to stay. So are you moving in you know, some thicker cover then, Bill? More, yeah. Maybe a bedding area or, or – yeah, okay. Yeah, you just stay deeper. You don't come out into the open quite as much. And you really see that uh, from, from about the 10th of November until about the 20th of November, you really don't see very many does on the food. Um, so that's – there's no really uh, upside to spending a lot of time sitting on those spots. Occasionally you'll get a buck cruising through just hoping for the best. But generally, you're gonna you're gonna do better, um, you know, staying back in the cover where the does are because that's what the bucks are doing. They know the does are back in the cover. They're gonna be in there snooping for them. Uh, so that's uh, that's kind of the I learned that lesson the hard way too. That you know there is a certain <laughs> there's a certain point in the rut when they, they the does just don't come out anymore. 
and it doesn't pay for you to be in the open during that time. I have not heard that before. I love that. I think uh, we all get focused on these, you know, on these food sources and never switch off into that real, real thick stuff. And I, I like that. Now, moving into into late season, I guess um, I'm guessing evening hunts. And w- what would be your go-to food source? And uh, are you in a tree stand or a blind for scent control? Or I guess paint that picture. Yeah, I think blind hunting. I think late season and blind hunting kind of go hand in hand because you're hunting food. Uh, like you said, I'm not usually hunting mornings in the late season. You could probably find a way to do it. You know, there's just a certain point in, in, in every year where I have to get back to work. You know, I have to get something done. And, and you know, so I will take advantage of, of the fact that it's a little bit slower in the mornings or a lot slower, you know, and just, you know, spend time in my office working and then just hunt the afternoons during the late season. So I'm focused around food. Ideally, it's going to be corn, beans, or sorghum. It's going to be grain. Um, corn is best if you've got it, especially if it's cold. Um, but they like corn anyway, but they like it a lot when it's cold. Um, so the best thing to do in, in, in my experience is just to have um, – I like I like putting my, my ground blinds on trailers. So I use these redneck blinds because I can close the windows up, like you say. I can seal everything up so my scent stays inside. I can pull them – right into the feeding area with that, uh, you know, with that blind on a trailer. And, uh, you know, the, they, they can't smell me, so they come out, you know, on all sides of the blind. Um, it's hard to hunt late season out of a tree because the deer have so many options of where they can feed. Typically, your smaller food plots have already been fed out. There's nothing left in them. So you're hunting bigger spots. And the deer can approach those from so many different directions. And, you know, just some of them are going to come in downwind of you. And some of them are going to see you up there because all the leaves are off and they're hyper alert. Um, I've just had a lot of really bad experiences trying to hunt these bigger feeding areas from a tree stand during the late season. Uh, plus, it's cold, you know, so the ground blind is nice. You know, <laughs> you can stay warm in there. Uh, so, you know, you can hunt some really brutal conditions that you might not even say you know, you'd even want to hunt if you're in a tree. When I'm getting softer as I get older, when I was younger, I would have thought, eh, 10 degrees, that'll, or, you know, whatever, that's fine. But now it's like, ooh, 10 degrees. <laughs> that seems I hear cold. You there. I hear you there. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, that's, that's my late season formula. And, and the, they don't see you in those blinds that well. You know, you can kind of, you know, you can spend a lot of time around the deer without spooking them. Whereas from a tree, I just feel like it's just a matter of time. If you're in a tree, they're going to get you. Um, so you just – and we get really good at, you know, a diversion at the end of legal shooting time. You know, I'll arrange for, you know, our son to drive out with his truck or to somebody to come on a four-wheeler or somehow, you know, to get the deer bumped off those fields so we can get out of those blinds and get out of there without spooking them. And, you know, I've hunted the same fields three, four, five days in a row, and the deer just continue to pile out just as if nothing happened they don't seem to mind it, you know, especially in farm country where they're used to, you know, four wheelers and trucks and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's no big deal to bump them off at the end of legal shooting time and then get the heck out of there quick. Um, they don't seem to, you know, to consider that when they come back up the next day. <clears throat> so that's, Very nice. that's, that's my formula. Uh, and it works really good. I mean, it's with a gun, you know, if you're a, a the, the, Late season is almost like cheating if you have corn and a gun and a blind. Um, it really is, especially if you haven't had a whole lot of hunting pressure. 
you know, if the deer are, you know, not heavily pressured, it's cold, you've got corn, you're in a blind with a gun, uh, I mean, just, you might as well just call the taxidermist, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you're, you're going to be shooting something. And uh, But with a bow, it's a lot different with a bow because, you know, you just can't command that big of an area. So um, right. I've had a lot of really good hunts where I didn't kill anything with a bow in, in the late season. You know, you just I suppose you could call them frustrating, but you know, seeing a lot of deer and seeing some really nice shooters, you know, repeatedly, sometimes four, five, six evenings in a row and just not being able to kill them because they're 60 yards away or 100 yards away or whatever they are. No, it sounds like a, a very uh, systematic system you have there or, or um, stand choice for, for each section, and I uh, appreciate you going into that for us. Um, you know, one last question for you. It's kind of an oddball. Uh, we've asked it to many of our guests, and we get some pretty cool answers. Um, wondering what your favorite tree is for habitat or for hunting. And literally take this any way you want to take it and go with it. <laughs> well, I mean, my favorite tree for hunting is a shingle oak, is what we call them here. They're similar to pin oak. Uh, it's an oval-shaped leaf, but it, they're really, really thick trees. And it's pretty hard to kill them, you know, so when you're cutting branches out and so forth, you know, to make your shooting lanes, they're not nearly as sensitive as some of the other oak trees. You're not going to, you're not going to necessarily kill them, you know, by, by stressing them. But anyway, you can hide in those things. Um, they're awesome. I mean, there's tons of cover. And uh, so I really like putting my stands in those. I'll go out of my way to find those kind of trees to put my stands in. Um, and, and I don't really, you know, obviously any kind of tree with fork branches is, is good, but you just can't beat those those shingle oaks because of how thick all the, the vegetation is or the leaves are. Um, from a management standpoint, um, you know, I, I think the – I like swamp white oak. There's something about that tree. I just like it. It's a cool tree. It looks neat. Uh, the deer don't seem to eat it as much when it's growing as right. some of the other oaks. Uh, they seem to leave it alone. It's, uh, I I think if I was going to, if I had the right soil types, you, know, you got to have a little bit moister soil. It doesn't have to be a swamp, but, you know, they do prefer, you know, a little bit more poorly drained soil than, than maybe some of the other oaks. But uh, uh, I really feel like that's a really cool tree. If you haven't, if you haven't planted swamp white oak, um, that would be one that I would add to the list. And, uh, just just from the standpoint of it being just a really cool tree. Very nice. No, we've heard uh we've heard uh white oak. I don't know if we've heard swamp white oak and we haven't heard shingle oak yet. So that's <laughs> you know, that's another new one. I love it. Yeah, and, and uh but uh yeah the the swamp white oak is uh for whatever reason, in my experience, the deer just don't eat them nearly as aggressively when they're growing is what they do, this, the, the white oak and the red oak and the mm. and even the black oak. Um, so that's something to, like I said, kind of keep in mind next time you're planning a planting. Yeah, yeah. Well, shoot, Bill. I got to thank you very much for, for coming on. Uh, this was a, an excellent conversation, and I just really appreciate your time and, and Learned a lot. I can't wait to re-listen to it when I'm not paying attention to, you know, the nine different things I'm trying to do right now. So thank you very much. <laughs> no, it's my pleasure. And, and like I said, when we, you know, before we even went on the air with this, that, um, you know, it's just a fun topic. It's more conversational and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, something that I really enjoy talking about. So 
I didn't feel like it was any problem at all. Thank you so much, Bill. We appreciate it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. And, and uh, you guys take care and good luck. Call me if you ever you ever need me again. Will do. Thank you. Yeah, hey, we'll okay. pick you up on that, sir. <laughs> good luck this evening. Uh, yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, HabitatPodcast.com, we have our Habitat Property Consultation Services on there under the Land Plan tab. Check out our HP Land Plans there. We also have hats, T-shirts, and decals up at HabitatPodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max Cultipackers, Huntwise, Killer Food Plots, The Habitat Hook, Realtree United Country Land Pro, Lake States Realty and Auction. Sound Barrier Hunting, and Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.